there's no question that we're going to see a profusion of digital payments uh, methods. You're listening to Payments Innovation, a podcast dedicated to helping business leaders navigate today's global digital economy. Looking to learn about the latest innovations within fintech and payments? You've come to the right place. Let's get into the show. Welcome to the Payments Innovation Podcast. This is Chris with Currency Cloud. And today, I'm excited to have Bruce Parker join from Moto Payments. Bruce, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Chris. I really appreciate the opportunity to chat. Of course, it's a pleasure to have you here. And if you could, for our listeners, Bruce, if you could give a background of uh, your experience and where you're coming from and what you're doing at Moto Payments. Yeah, sure. Uh, I've been in the in the payments business, specifically the, the software side of payments, for the better part of two decades, uh, with a bunch of different companies: um, FIS, ACI, eFunds, uh, and a smaller company in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, which is where I'm calling you from. Uh, a number of years ago, called S2 Systems. So I've seen a lot of technology and infrastructure challenges when it comes to how we manage data in payments and how we exchange that between systems and networks and all the various participants in the payments ecosystem. Great. Appreciate that. And about Moto Payments, what exactly are you doing over there? Yeah, Moto Moto is a utility uh, focused on payments data, how it gets exchanged, and in particular, how to achieve interoperability. Um, And it really kind of nets out as there's a lot of new stuff going on in payments, new forms of payments, new payment methods, new payment networks. Um, you could just kind of put them broadly, perhaps, in a category of digital uh, payments methods. Uh, PayPal here in North America, Klarna in Europe, Alipay uh, and WeChat Pay in Asia are simple examples, but there's a couple hundred of those that are kind of popping up. Um, and it's driving a lot of change and friction in between, you know, merchants who are trying to figure out how to deal with the different methods of payment that are popping up, uh, as well as banks and other folks in the ecosystem who just really need to be able to move back and forth between traditional payment methods that are generally bank-centric and what's happening now. So what we do, uh, what Moto does, is we actually connect the dots. We connect between the new and the old. uh, And what we mean by interoperability is being able to do that without changing either side, without changing the existing systems, perhaps at a bank, uh, or the new systems, perhaps at one of those new methods of payment. So that's the that's the the short summary of what we're up to. Appreciate that. And are you um, essentially integrating the different payment systems, or how how are you doing? Uh, I guess breaking down and connecting the dots. Yeah, you use the word integration, and and that's. Um, it's actually a really good point of distinction or something that I'll spend a moment on. Uh, integration really means how do you make two things the same, right? How do you turn the data that's being exchanged into the same format, same syntax, the same structure, the same meanings on both sides of the connection? And in our case, uh, we don't actually think that that's necessary. In some cases, it's not even uh, actually possible because, as I mentioned, it's very, very difficult to change payments infrastructure. That's something I learned actually over the course of the last uh, few stops in my career is that even when people want to change out the software that they use uh, to manage payments, they sometimes aren't able to. Um, It's it's just really tough. Uh, Those systems are, you know, being used for huge amounts of volume every day. So integration for us is kind of not a no-no, but it's just really hard. 
So instead, what we say is, hey, look, we'll build a connection to uh, the, the system, whether that's new or old or you know something in between. Um, and we, we code to those existing interfaces. We code to those existing APIs. Uh, and we actually perform this interoperability function in the center, which says, okay, I'm going to take things, for instance, from a bank platform at Bank of America, uh, which knows how to talk to bank networks like ACH. And I'm going to transform that in such a way that I can fire it into PayPal through their API for payouts. And this is what we do for Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. Uh, they just announced this at the end of January, and it's in production and very exciting stuff for us today. But that's it's an example of... You know what? The bank's uh, system for managing funds as they move from large corporations to individuals, uh, it's, it's moving $5 trillion a year. It's not easy to change. It's got a lot going on. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Got a little bit of a cold. PayPal, at the same time, has uh, a well-defined API by which they process uh, payout transactions is what they would call those. And uh, that, that payout API sort of has existed long uh, time and, and is something that's used by a number of people. So there's the difference, right? The way the, the bank system works and the way it communicates is very different from the way the PayPal interface and API works. Uh, and our job is to bridge the gap, right? How do we take the information out of the bank system and re recharacterize it, reformat it, um, and reassemble it uh, on the other side for PayPal? So that's what that's what we do. We call that interoperability rather than integration. Again, precisely because. We're leaving both sides the same. We're, there are two different things that are involved, and there are two different uh, ways in which those systems work. That, that makes that makes total sense. Now, when you work with the company that's you know interested in using you uh, to to create this uh, you know essential workflow for them, um, does it run on a case by case basis as far as you going in and determining what needs to be done, and then working with uh, the third parties to essentially build that out, or? If you could go talk about how that process works for the merchant. Sure. Yeah. Merchant, bank, corporation, or network. It, you know, we could start sort of on either side of the picture. From our perspective, uh, we built out uh, several dozen connections already uh, to a number of leading providers of uh, uh, online payment methods, mobile payment methods, uh, the traditional card acquiring, card issuing. Uh, gift card, loyalty. So we have a number of different types of systems that we've already got connections. And that's generally where the conversation starts. What are we already connected to? And, and oftentimes people are trying to do the same things. Uh, we think of those in kind of three different categories. Uh, people tend to be focused on checkouts, purchases, whether those are made online or in-store or uh, mobily, digitally, how, however that checkout or purchase transaction may, may occur. Uh, we think of those as payouts, which I was just describing, which is how money moves generally from large businesses to either small businesses or consumers. And then the reverse, pay-ins, when either small businesses or consumers are paying large entities. So whichever of those three categories, checkouts, payouts, or pay-ins, that we're talking about, um, our job is to, first of all, show up and say, okay, what is, what is the system that you're using? If it's a bank, if it's a merchant, if it's a corporation, uh, there's something they're using to generate payment requests or a system that they're using to manage payments flows. So in the checkout environment, that's pretty straightforward. Those are store-oriented systems, either online or physically, that accept payments and process them through the various network connections. So we've, we've done uh, work with Verifone. We've done work with FIS on how to bring new forms of payment, new methods or currencies in store. 
uh, we've done some similar work with Alliance Data Systems, uh, who's been a partner uh, for a number of years now. Uh, and online, um, probably our best known example is uh, work that we do with Klarna on how to deliver the Klarna method of payment and checkout, which is a super smooth experience to a number of different online merchants who in fact have not done the integration with Klarna. In fact, precisely they're using um, the ability to process MasterCard transactions as a means by which to access uh, services from Klarna. I see. Okay, so it's basically being able to have an open road uh, between multiple different services uh, to help the support. It's really interesting, is you know, and I see the difference between the integration as uh, building one piece uh, to the other. Now, when you speak about the interoperability uh, compared to the integration, do you see the sense of like an open data system to see that's where, you know, I guess. In Europe, that's where they're going, and in the U.S., I think that's the road we're going. Is is an open source? Do you think this is the beginning of an open source environment? Um, well, open source. If you mean by open source, the the sort of open access to data and to payment services and banking services, uh, absolutely. I mean, I think that's a trend that we've seen, um, and we've seen actually generate fairly large, successful. Uh, payment entities as outcomes. So if you look at, at Stripe or Square or uh, overseas Adyen or some others. Um, they they have provided in the in the checkout environment sort of a democratization of access to different forms of payment or just getting into the payments business at all, uh, being able to use uh, payment services in a different way, and that that's been very valuable. And I, I think I would characterize every one of those businesses as opening up access. Uh, if we look at in the in the payouts environment, there's uh, World Remit, TransferWise, Transfer2, Transfer Everybody Else, um, and those folks uh, again have made the endpoints for delivery of transactions much more accessible to uh, a whole a whole a whole new audience. Um, so I, I definitely think when we look at those from a payments perspective, uh, or we think about what's going on in Europe with PSD2. Uh, access to APIs where you can look at transactions, where you can request bank transfers and things like that. Uh, we're moving towards a, uh, an environment where people just simply expect that they can gain access to um, what they use for payments or how they make payments in different ways. And that, that absolutely is going to drive the question. It doesn't actually solve the problem, though. Just because the market de demands it or wants it doesn't make it any easier for existing players to provide it. So that's the tension that we see ourselves uh, slotting in, which is to say, hey, look, the hard part about this is how do you give secure access to payments data and make sure that it's usable by somebody on the other side when they're going about it in a very different way? They may have different payment method preferences, uh, you know, credit versus debit. They may have different networks that they want to use, Visa versus proprietary versus MasterCard versus uh, something new. Uh, and, and so that's that's the place where this interoperability demand comes from is to say, okay, everybody wants to open things up, but at the same time, they're all committed to existing systems or existing choices that they've made that kind of constrain their ability to, to do anything they want. And, and we're there to bridge the gap and say, well, we'll help you connect to pretty well anything that you like uh, because we've redefined what we think payments data is, kind of mm -hmm. chop it up into its component parts and can reassemble it. Uh, for for whatever need or audience uh, is asked for. 
I guess, again, I guess to, I guess, go further on that, as far as yourself and your team building out, do you see certain uh, industries, uh, let's say FIs, uh, compared to, uh, let's say, a PSP or payment service provider, uh, one compared to the other more difficult or a longer time to build out for you? Or are they kind of an even playing field to be able to connect uh, the different pieces together? Well, you know, that's that's kind of an interesting uh, question. Our experience so far, um, and I probably shouldn't say it this way, I'm a little surprised. Um, we have been able to kind of break up payments data from a whole host of systems that are very, very different from one another. I was kind of rattling them off before. Some are retail-oriented. Some of them are business-oriented. Some of them are very much just how banks work, like Swift uh, network messages. And uh, we've we've succeeded, like I said, I shouldn't be surprised. But we've succeeded in kind of turning those into what we think of as their component parts in every case. Um, and there are four things in those components. The, the first is um, the identities, the credentials. How do you identify who's participating in the payment? Uh, the second is the fact that the payment goes through a life cycle. It goes through a series of transaction states. Uh, so in the card world, sometimes we talk about authorizations and captures and settlement. Those are all different states of a transaction, kind of like lights in a stoplight. Um, we, and the purpose of all of this is, of course, to move money. And when you move money, you need to account for that movement of money. So that's our third category is sort of uh, accounting, or I guess the cool kids are saying it now, ledger entries, right? keeping track of the balances that sit in various systems that might be involved uh, in a chain of interactions. And then last but not least is other data, kind of a little bit of a catch-all. Uh, but this could be things like receipt details, like what did you buy, you know, how many pairs of shoes or how many tubes of toothpaste. It could also be things in a B2B context that are more around delivery, uh, could be more about shipping or lading information, remittance details, invoice details, other things like that. So there's other information. I, sometimes I would refer to it as commercial context that surrounds a payment is the reason the payment occurred in the first place, but oftentimes doesn't fit through the payment channel. So for instance, that's why today you don't have access to your receipts in your bank environment. You should, right? You use a card, you make a purchase, you bought something specific. The store certainly knows what you bought that's specific. They know what your receipt details are, but for, for a bunch of really not very good to explain reasons. Some of them are sort of geeky and others of them are sort of nonsensical and just the way the industry developed. You can't access that receipt detail, even though it's associated with the card that you use from a given bank. So those are the kinds of problems that we have built a platform that says, okay, I'm going to tear apart every piece of payment data that comes my way. I'm going to put it in these four categories of identities, transaction states, accounting or ledger entries, and, and context or commercial commercial data. And I'm going to be able to kind of reassemble it on the other side for whoever else wants it, whoever else is allowed to see it. Uh, we use bank-grade security, military-grade security. I don't know how you want to say that. Uh, it's the same sort of stuff that secures wire co codes. It's the same sort of stuff that secures uh, PIN numbers for debit cards. Uh, they're called HSMs. And, and we actually use those in order to be able to maintain you know, the highest possible levels of security for the information that's being stored inside the system. And, and some of these credentials have extraordinary amounts of value sitting behind them. Um, and so it requires that. That's, that is how we think about the, the four different categories of, of data 
from a whole bunch of different kinds of payment systems, like I said, um, that ranges from loyalty systems and gift cards, which are very different from credit card systems, which are very different from bank systems, which are very different from PayPal and Klarna and Alipay and, and others in the digital world, uh, and even the sort of super high-end bank-to-bank uh, communications using the SWIFT network. We have examples of all of those uh, that we've built connectors to so far today and have delivered interoperability for today. Uh, so we're we're really bullish that uh, you know we'll take all comers from from this point forward. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, to, to break it down like that and get the understanding of each each area and each uh, I guess different type um, kind of meshes into one uh, multiple platform for you to be able to dive in and, and take that on. Uh, where where do you see I guess to wrap up? Where where do you see uh, the interoperability for these companies being accepted so far? Um, you've gotten some great traction, but I guess in the next you know couple of years, um, do you think that you know this need, as, as I think, this need will be definitely a, a necessity as more payments companies are coming about, FIs, um, you know, charging into this space as well. Where, where do you see this space going in the next few years? Sure. Um, well, I don't think banks are going anywhere. Um, my my perspective on that is banks have a regulated monopoly on issuing fiat currencies in electronic form. Um, and so that's that's something that's true in every country around the world. Uh, banks are very tightly associated with the government and printing money and where money supply even comes from. Uh, and they have a fairly systemic role within the economy, which is why we talk about, you know, they're too big to fail or uh, their relative importance to economies. So I think that no matter what horizon you look out over, there will always be a bank um, because that's sort of a, a definitional participant inside um, every economy that developing or developed. The role that they play with respect to experiences, though, can and does change. I mean, if we go back 50 years ago, there wasn't the same concept of branded cards, credit and debit cards that we have today. Uh, we're thrilled to have D. Hawk, the founder of Visa, as one of our advisors, and he talks a lot about sort of the state of the industry before Visa uh, began its march to its current position. Uh, and so I think there's no question that we're going to see a profusion of digital payments uh, methods. We've seen 250 sort of arrive on the scene. We've seen several winners emerge, uh, kind of see that it's still being PayPal and Alipay and WeChat and our good friends at Klarna. Um, so that that kind of equation is also likely to be the case still. We may see more new entrants in the digital world. We may see more new entrants in the in the banking world. But at the end of the day, anything that works really, really well tends to get consumed by banks. At one point, ATMs were sort of this unique thing, and now everyone has an ATM. That's not really considered anything new. Uh, the means by which you know banks attract deposits and make loans um, have changed, but the actual function of deposits and loans tend to have stayed with them. So I, I would definitely bet on banks' current role remaining very similar uh, in the future. I would also definitely bet on new innovators like the fintech community coming up with great new experiences that people love. Um, some of those seeing very widespread adoption, uh, but sort of the end of that story is once they see wide enough adoption, then Every major financial institution will either offer the same thing, acquire those companies in order to be able to deliver those experiences themselves, or some kind of combination in between. So it, it to me, is sort of um, 
more things will change, more things will stay the same, um, and I definitely can't predict what we'll see in terms of the most widely adopted experiences in the next uh, in the next several years. But I can absolutely say, well, the the relationship of those new experiences, whether offered by fintechs, offered by the banks themselves, or offered by other entities who are trying to enter the space, uh, will just end up needing connectivity and interoperability between uh, the traditional financial services organizations, uh, the governments that support them or that, that uh, legislate them into and out of existence, uh, and that, that world of innovation. So for us, that means there's going to be a durable set of opportunities to solve the problem of connecting between old and new. That's, that's where we see sort of that will always be, a, that'll always be an opportunity, that'll always be a, um, a challenge. Well, Bruce, this has been really helpful for me, knowledgeable for our listeners. So I do appreciate the time coming on today. If you could, if you could give the best contact uh, information for our listeners, if they want to get in contact with you and your team. Yeah, sure. You can reach out at uh, info at motopayments.com. Uh, you can also DM us on, uh, on Twitter at motopayments. Um, we'd be delighted to connect with uh, anybody who wants to reach out. That'd be fantastic. Awesome. Well, Bruce, thanks again. Appreciate you having uh, on the show and we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Chris. Really appreciate it. Currency Cloud is an online payments company that makes international money transfers fast and simple for businesses. We're building a borderless future where international transactions are seamless for a better user experience. Discover the world's most trusted payment platform and our toolkit of developer-friendly APIs at CurrencyCloud.com. You've been listening to the Payments Innovation Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe now in iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Until next time.